Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And I am uh, joined today by Dr. Mindy Pels, who is uh, quite a bit of expertise in, in a topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is uh, goes by a number of names. Uh, I prefer the term time-restricted eating or TRE. Uh, it's actually TRF, time-restricted feeding, if you're referring to animals. But humans, we go with the eating. And a lot of people, though, refer to it as intermittent fasting. And I, I think that's uh, not as cr- accurate, correct, or correct because it uh, goes into uh, that's a much broader category. And time restricted eating, in my view, is probably one of the most foundational strategies to stay healthy. Um, and I'm just going to go on a little bit before I bring Dr. Dr. Pels on because I, I I'm just passionate about this. I, I, the, the person who brought it to our attention for the most part, there's a number of researchers, but the primary one is Dr. Sachin Panda, who's out of the Salk Institute and, and uh, been working on this for almost two decades now. I think he deserves a Nobel Prize for this. But the reason why it's so important, is one of the most profoundly important um, strategies to address what affects 19 of 20 people in the United States, 19 and 20 people in the United States are metabolically inflexible. That is, they've lost the ability to seamlessly transition between burning fat and carbohydrates as their primary fuel. And that is documented by a study that was published in uh, July of this year in the Journal of American Cardiology that referenced the NHANES data. They actually found 93%, but the data was from 2018, which is four years ago. And the previous analysis was 2016, and it was 88%. So it might even be more than 19 out of 20. So it's almost everyone. And if you are one of the one out of 20 people in this country that are fortunate enough not to be in that category, well, I guarantee you, your friends and family are in that category. So they need this information desperately. And we are going to go into it in great detail today because it's so important. I can't say that enough. And um, Dr. Panda highlighted it, but he didn't really dive into the details as much as, you know, painting the broad stroke and giving us the, the scientific credentials and validation that this is real, this is true. And, and, and it's still emerging. Most of the studies were done, have done in animal models. There's not as many studies that have been in humans, but there's beyond compelling reasons to believe it's just as true in humans. And, and this hu- few human trials that have been done just prove what the animal trials are. So um, the reason I want to bring Dr. Mindy on today is that she has committed the bulk of her clinical career to using this principle, but fine tuning it in the, in the trenches and understanding the hormonal uh, components that need to be adjusted. Well, the, the modification of the time treating strategies that need to be adjusted according to primarily related to hormones and specifically in females as her expertise is in females. So I'm, I have no clinical expertise in this area. I just know that this works. I, if I've been an, advocate of this for and been personally apl- applying it for well over six years, maybe seven. 
And it, it is a game-changing thing. It is absolutely game-changing. And so that's why I think we should devote a whole episode of an interview on diving deep in this topic. So with that long and, and typically unusually long uh, introduction, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Oh, I, I absolutely loved that introduction. So thank you for having me. And um, I couldn't have said it more um, clearly. Uh, it, it really is a tool that everybody needs to know about. So thank you for highlighting it. I, I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So maybe you can uh, relate to us your journey and how you acquired this expertise and what motivated you to go down this rabbit hole. Yeah. So it's kind of twofold. You know, a lot of times uh, many of us find tools to solve our own health problems and then we turn around and use them with our with our patients and see that they work incredibly well. Um, for me, I would say in my early 40s, I was looking for a tool to help with some of my menopause symptoms that were perimenopause symptoms that were showing up. Um, I what I always say that I came into my 40s really healthy, eating really well, exercising, doing all the right things. And by about 43, all the menopausal symptoms were appearing, everything from trouble sleeping, hot flashes, weight gain, uh, fatigue, brain fog. And I, I hadn't changed anything. I had not done anything new in my health habits. And about that time, Dr. Osumi had been recognized for the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology for a term called autophagy. Mm. And I dove into that to, you know, it really was um, so clear in my mind that we come with these self-healing mechanisms mm -hmm. in our body. And that's all Dr. Osumi highlighted is you go without food and the body heals itself. And so I got really excited about this principle and I brought it to my patients. I brought it to my online community and I used it on myself and it blew me away to your point when we opened this up that you could just take what somebody was eating and compress it into a finite period of time. And a wide array of symptoms would go away and people would become supercharged. And so that was about seven, eight years ago. And I've been teaching it online ever since specifically for women. And we are seeing just insane results. And we're also seeing the modifications that need to be for women. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to the fine tuning broad stroke details yeah. that you've uncovered in your, <laughs> your last seven years or so. So uh, I am, um, I'd like to go first, though, into the, the what you mentioned about autophagy, which is a very, very powerful principle, okay. and, and, and it's something very similar to that, which is calorie restriction. And there is unequivocal, uncontroversial evidence that calorie restriction is one of the most potent strategies to increase longevity. The problem is the compliance for that is close to zero yeah. uh, long term. You're not going to get people to cut down 20, 30% of their calories, but it appears that the mechanisms of time-restricted eating and calorie restriction are almost identical. Calorie restriction may be a little bit more profound or even extend. There's two ways you can do calorie restriction. One is continuous and the other is by fasting. So the the, the, the benefits of the tier time-restricted eating are somewhat modulated compared to those two, but they, the same mechanisms, the same darn things occur. Yeah. So why why don't we go into some of the benefits that restricting the food window per day has for a day for 24 hours no no yeah we're restricting the food in the cycle right because we yeah. know we know by cutting down 
your calories by 30%, again, the compliance is close to zero or doing long-term fasting, which you can't do it forever because you've got to eat eventually. Otherwise it's called starvation and you are dead. Yep. So we, we, we want the happy medium. Okay. So I think the biggest thing that I've seen in just teaching so many people this principle is that most people don't realize that we have two energy systems. We have an energy, energy system that taps in when we eat, when our blood sugar goes up, our body uses that glucose for energy. And when our blood sugar goes down and we're in a fasted, start to go into a fasted state, it switches over to a different energy system. Um, a lot of people call it, you know, know it as ketones. Some people call it the fat burner energy system, but we're really meant to metabolically switch over to this system. So what I think has happened is that we have too many people that are trying to just manipulate the food. They're just trying. We have so many discussions about what type of food and, you know, back to the calorie counting um, idea that you talked about. It's like it's all the conversation around nutrition has been around what to eat. And what we're starting to see is it's actually the more powerful conversation is when to eat. And how do we switch over to this fat burning system? And what we know based off of research and what I'm seeing now uh, off of millions of people is that when we switch over, the longer we stay in this fat burning ketogenic system, the more healing happens. So we know 13 to 15 hours, we start to make ketones, we see growth hormone uh, rise. So we see inflammation come down 17, 18 hours in this fasted state, we start to see autophagy kick in 24 hours. We know that stem cells can start to be uh, come about in the intestinal area. I mean, it goes on and on. 48 hours, we're seeing antioxidant production go up. And then Walter Longo taught us that 72 hours, you can reboot your whole immune system. So it's like this, this, this neurochemical magic that can happen in the body, but you can only access it when you go without fit. Yeah. Yeah. It's just extraordinary. And the other interesting component about it is that uh, it ties in really uh intimately with your circadian rhythm. Many people aren't aware of this. I, I, I was superficially when I interviewed Panda, Dr. Panda about, I don't know, four or five years ago, but then I re-explored re re his work and it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, so the circadian rhythm, of course, most people know about and believe that it's related to the uh, this master clock in your brain called in this, this suprachiasmatic nucleus. Um, but what most people don't realize is that every single one of your cells in your body, or almost every cell, maybe there, I'm sure there's a few that aren't, have a, a, a clock within it that's unrelated to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, nucleus. And unlike light and day, which triggers the master clock, it appears that food is the most important trigger for this other clock and all the rest of your cells. So if you don't get this right, your circadian rhythms, which are responsible for essentially turning off and on large numbers of, of proteins productions in your body and, and, you know, turning it off is as equally as turning it on. So perhaps you can uh, dis discuss this for a bit. Yeah, I think the, the easiest way to understand this is go back to how we lived in the primal days. You know, mm -hmm. we came, we came out of the, the cave. We didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't have a pantry. And so everything that we did back in those primal days 
was around, to your point, the, the rising of the sun and the falling of the sun and the search for food. So what's happened now is we're so affected by artificial light. We have access to food all day long that we are so out of touch with our natural rhythm and the circadian rhythm being one of them. So when we start to fast, we actually have a door in now to be mimicking what our primal ancestors did, which is go a little longer without food. And usually that was, you know, in the morning, we they had to get up and they had to go search for food. And then they came home in the afternoon and they feasted. And so this feast, famine, cycling, when done within a day period, tends to t- tap into the circadian rhythm and can start to bring back some normalcy to these natural rhythms that this modern life has so pulled us away from. And so, so Panda's research shows that over 90% of people, 90% of people eat over 12 hours a day. And I think the obese people, it's at least 40 to 50% of them are eating over 14 or 15 hours a day, which is crazy. And you combine that with the, you mentioned the um, introduction or not the introduction, but the exposure to light beyond what we were ideally designed to be exposed to it, you know, which is essentially uh, after sunrise and before sunset. And if you get light exposure after that, you're going to really, you know, essentially not any light exposure, but light that has blue, blue in it, you, you're going to interfere with your circadian cycles. So with the combination of eating over 12 hours a day and light exposure, it is no surprise and probably just precisely predictable that 19 out of 20 people in this country are screwed up and metabolically inflexible and they cannot make that seamless transition that you refer to 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 convert uh, from burning glucose to to having their body uh, essentially metabolize their fat stores for energy, which is so important to do. And you were designed to do that. Now we can't. So I'm so excited to dive into your, your, your findings on and practical discoveries on how we can fine tune this because there's a broad range. So we should definitely eat less than 12 hours a day, but you can go from any to to 10 hours to four hours. And some people even do OMAD, which is one meal a day, maybe one hour, two hours. And so that range is what I really want to dive deep in. And you have the clinical expertise and to help us understand who, who is the person that needs to go to 10 hours, maybe even 12 hours and who, who can, safely go down because there there are some concerns and and potential dangers here if you if you do this too aggressively so that's what i'm hoping you can share your wisdom with us for yeah you know so, so the first thing is remember you are trying to mimic what primally we did so feast famine cycling i mean in the cave person days sometimes they feasted and sometimes they went two or three days without food and that's how they're able to switch in and out and to your point right now we're just at an evolutionary mismatch we are we are living in a world that's incongruent with how the body wants to be treated so what I like to look at is you got to, the, the best way to approach fasting, in my opinion, and what I'm seeing with my community is finding your natural rhythm. We mm-hmm. really want absolutes. It'd be much easier for me to sit here and go, well, men really thrive with a 17 hour fast <laughs> and women thrive with the 13. But in the book, I really talk about building a fasting lifestyle that's unique to you because now you can follow it through over and over again. But what I saw, it was really interesting as I started to teach autophagy on my YouTube channel. 
and people fell in love with the concept. It's it's so funny how it seems like such a complicated wor- word, but I got to tell you, I've got millions of views every month on my channel, show people really excited about this concept. But what we found is that a lot of people got very rigid with their fasting window. The O matters, for example, to your point, they would do one meal a day. Then maybe it was dinner over and over and over again. They'd get great results, but then they'd get stuck Mm -hmm. and they'd start to get bad results because they were, it became too rigid and they weren't mimicking this feast, famine, cycling. So what I started teaching on YouTube was how to vary it, how to, I like the a general like 511 concept where five days a week, you're intermittent fasting, maybe 15 hours, one day a week, you stretch it a little bit and one day a week, you don't fast. That's sort of a door into what the primal ancestors did. And what we're seeing with that is it's unreal. The amounts of medication people are getting off of, the the weight people are losing. Oh my gosh, it's crazy on my YouTube channel how much weight people are are losing And, and the supercharging of their brain all by just getting back into this feast famine rhythm and finding it unique to them. So there's really not one answer of like, what's the perfect fasting window? I know we love a lot of people love the 168. That seems to be a very popular fasting window. And I think that works really great, but again, we've got to keep variation at the forefront of this conversation. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping you help us understand on, on how we customize that yeah. window for everyone because it, everyone's different. No question. So um What's your first step? Yeah, I was just going to say, why don't I sort of walk through if people aren't fasting, this is what we've seen. Is the first step is you've got to figure out how to get over to this fat burning system. So if you've been eating all day, uh, what I recommend is you start to look at that time period when you wake up to the time period when you sleep, that you start to compress your eating window. And usually I tell people, just push your breakfast back an hour, Get, you want to get a little uncomfortable. You want it to be just a little bit where it's like, ah, I'm ready to eat because we've applied a hormetic stress that the body can adapt to now. So then once you get comfortable there, you push it back another hour, another hour until you get to 15 hours is what I feel like. 15, 16 hours is that first ledge. You want to feel ketones and ketones feel like they supercharge your brain. You have better energy and your hunger goes away. That's how you really know you've switched over. And usually for most people, that will happen around 15, 16 hours. And of I not, use, of not eating. Of, of not, not eating. eating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So usually I tell people do that for like a month. Just get really comfortable with that and then move into more variation. This is where men and women really differ for men. I feel like we can move into a 511. Like I talked about for women, this is where the second month, I really encourage women to map it to her cycle if she has one. Um, but it's the everybody wants to sort of trick fasting out in the beginning. And mm-hmm. I'm really about like, let's let's just get the switch primed and get it unrusty so that your body can get to making ketones and then we can start to go into more variation. So I don't, I don't have the perfect window, but I have the door in is somewhere around 15, 16 hours, we start to see people really start to make ketones. Yeah, that's a very important part of the equation because uh, many people coming into this have not done it previously. So you've got to get them that doorway. And yeah. I think that's a really crucial piece of the piece of the puzzle. So I, I also wanted to address the comment you made earlier about 
how many of your your clients' patients were losing weight. In uh, my my reading of the literature is suggesting that this is independent of what the heck food they're eating. Because when you do it in animals, <laughs> yes. you can give them the standard the yes. standard uh, animal food, which is just absolutely terrible for health and longevity. And they, they you feed two groups of ident- genetically identical rats. And just the only variable you're changing is the eating window. And one group will be obese and the other will be lean, lean and mean. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously we don't recommend eating crap, but you almost could and still lose weight. So why don't you comment on your observations and in, in, in implementing this? Yeah. Thank you for highlighting that because the, the, a lot of the research is showing that when you compress your eating window to around 16 hours, you literally become metabolically immune from the damage that high fat, high processed food and refined carbohydrates does to your body. And a, and a great example was last summer, I had a, a man come to me who was over 300 pounds and he asked for my help. And uh, when I broke down where his problem was, he had a classic food addiction, drinking soda all day long, eating more the typical Western diet. And he had failed at every single diet before. So the first step I did is ask him just to take the food he was eating, the the Western American diet, and and start to compress it into an eight-hour period. And we did that for the first month, and he lost nine pounds. So he was eating all the same horrible food, drinking all the same soda. He just did it in a finite period, and he dropped nine pounds. Second month, I said, okay, could we start to look at maybe soda outside the house, not in the house? So we just worked on soda, compressed his window a little, his eating window a little more, 13 pounds. The third month, I added in some protein. I still haven't taken anything away. We got another nine pounds. So the guy in like three months, all he did is work on that eating window, change the soda a bit and add a good macronutrient in. And he was close to 40 pounds down. That's how powerful fasting is. I believe it should be our door in to weight loss. Um, and I agree with you. It's not a free pass to eat all the metabolic junk that is out there. But, you know, sometimes I wonder if we're ever going to overturn overturn big food, you know, big food and the and the horrible food that's poured into our grocery stores. I just don't know if we're going to be able to fight that battle. So let's get everybody just compressing their eating window so they're not dying of it. Well, you're right. That's the big challenge. So I've been working at for a quarter of a century. I know you have. I know. Yeah. And uh, we're making progress. You know, initially, no, when I first first started this, very few, virtually no one understood what GMOs were. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was less than 1% of the population. Now it's pretty much well understood. So it's a, it's an educational process and there's strategies you can do to, to implement it. But I think once you're empowered and metabolically flexible and have the ability to essentially control your appetite metabolically yep. and hormonally, it becomes much easier to make those choices. So, so you don't have to exercise this iron will discipline. Yep. It's just easy. It's like rolling off a log. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I, one of my favorite statements right now is that we always look for the motivation to lose weight, or we look for the motivation to change our eating habits. And really we don't need motivation. We need momentum. 
Mm-hmm. And once you get some momentum, then all of a sudden you're you're more inclined to make better food choices. One of my favorite studies was done on the alternate day diet, where they took a group of people who were overweight, high cholesterol, all the metabolic markers were off. And they said, you can eat whatever you want one day, just every other day you're not eating. And you're going to do that for a year. So eat whatever you want, fast one day, eat whatever you want, fast one day. Was that complete fasting or was it like 500 calories? No, it was complete fasting, complete. So one day you completely, you, you just drank water. And at the end of the year, not only had all the metabolic markers changed, not only had everybody's uh, lost weight, but their their cravings changed and I, they started eating healthier. And that's what I think is also a powerful tool of fasting is if you're struggling to get over this addiction that your body's created and your brain's created with this food, this is another benefit is that we start to see changes in the microbiome. We see changes in people get momentum and now they want to make better food choices. Indeed. So you've given us some really important principles. And that is if you're new to this, shoot for 15 or 16 hour idea. If you can get to 16 hours, that'd be even better, but shoot for that First, don't do anything to change your food intake at that point. Just compress eating with them. And then the other issue is, which is a really complex one, is is in women and seeking to integrate the hormonal variations to accommodate this shift. So I think, well, I don't know if we should address that first or maybe the more, it would would seem easier, the complexity, the, 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 issue and everyone else outside of the hormones, primarily men, of course, but the, the need to, to switch up mm-hmm. the, the eating window. Cause you know, the American concept is more is better. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I kind of like a six to eight hour eating window, but you know, pot, Sachin and Pandas pretty much uses an eight to 10 hour eating window, which is less extreme. Yeah. So, I wonder if you can comment on those, let's hit the easier one first. And, and you know, the, how do you vary up and cycle it? You, you, you implied that we should, whatever number we come to, we, we shouldn't keep it static. It should shift periodically. Yeah. And may, maybe supply some of your insights from your experience to support that. Yeah. In the new book, I, I put out six different fasts that we're seeing work in our community. And they're that some of these fasts, well, everyone has research around it, but then we've tested it mm-hmm. literally on, on millions of people. So um, it goes everywhere from 13 hours to 72 hours. And mm-hmm. at each one, think of it like switches. The longer you stay in a fasted state, you get more and more healing. So I think to, you know, um, the, the idea that eight to 10 hours, it's really easy. That's most people should be able to do an eight to 10 hour eating window. Um, but I want to encourage people to dip into some of the longer fast because that's where we're seeing some incredible results. So for example, a lot of people who are struggling to lose weight will do an eight to 10 hour eating window. And they're like, I don't have any ketones. I'm still hungry. I'm not seeing weight. And so we've got to push it a little bit more so that we can get the body to go find the glucose and that it stored years ago. That was that was uh, Jason Fung's uh, obesity code information. So the research that I the one for weight loss I love is 36 hours um, where for 30 days they had people do 
36 hours of fasting followed by 12 hours of eating. And you did that routine for 30 days and they saw a tremendous amount of reduction specifically in belly fat, which is a, a an area that people really want to see a lot of weight loss. Um, so we know that that when we go to those longer fasts, we can push weight loss a little more. There's an incredible study showing that 48 hours, we start to see the whole dopamine system reboot and we actually get new dopamine receptors that show up. And we see that in our community where people with real mood disorders, not like clinically intense ones, but just general depression and malaise and, and anxiety, when they go into a 48-hour fast, they start to notice that they're happier uh, the weeks afterwards. So for me and what my community has done, we're really saying find the what works for you most of the time and then experiment and dabble in some of these longer fasts and sprinkle them in so that you get the healing benefit that occurs in these longer periods. Okay, so I have some concerns with that approach, but it really admittedly is for a relatively mi minority of the population. For almost everyone, <laughs> it's going to be valid. Yeah. But there is a, a percentage of the people who are really good. I'm almost obsessive compulsive at following these things. And they find out that autophagy is great. It increases stem cells. I want to do as much as I can as possible. So they are beyond, they are in the one out of 20 people who are metabolically flexible already. They are they've been their optimal weight for most of their life. And they, if anything, they're underweight and they take it to an extreme. Mm -hmm. So the concern is and for this group specifically, and I actually fall into this group, because, <laughs> you know, yeah. so it has per personal relevance, but so the, the thought is, well, you're just going to do it more. So I, I've reached the more is better. It's, it's a classic uh, characteristic of most Americans is more is better. So, uh, and, and it certainly can be applied to this. So, but I've reached the personal experience that for me, and I've done long-term fast, you know, five, seven day, 10 day water fast before on a number of occasions, but at my age and my fitness level and uh, percentage of body fat, I don't think it's healthy for me to do anything long. I don't, I do not do more than a 18 hour fast, maybe 20. 20. Mm -hmm. I do. I go 20 hours pretty regularly, actually, but I do not do a, a day fast because I just my intention, my goal at this point in my life is to preserve my muscle mass and, and prevent sarcopenia. And when I stop eating for more, than, I mean, I, if, if it goes for I mean, I if, if I eat less than a 500 go down by 500,000 calories, I can lose a pound or two, or maybe even five pounds if I do it over a weekend of travel. So I am concerned about preserving body mass. And so I wonder if you can speak to that group of people. Yeah. And I, what I would say is you always want to know, what are you trying to achieve with fasting? It's not like, you know, it's, you got to have an intention and a goal. So let's use you as an example. You might be great with this 511 idea where you, you found your rhythm with a certain fast that works for you. One day a week, you kind of stretch it to see if you can just get yourself a little more metabolically um, to a new level. Not that there, I don't, I can't even imagine what the next level of metabolic health would be for you. <laughs> Um, and then one day a week where you're you're not fasting. So now we're we're mimicking our primal ancestors. So for somebody who but does, let's stop there. Do you think there's a benefit to, and there may be. I to, in my mind there isn't to ever extending that beyond twelve to eat more than twelve hours in one day. To me that seems a, like an abhorrent abhorrent concept that I would only push. Like if I was uh, traveling and speaking at an event and there was a late dinner or something. Yeah. So it's something I hardly ever do, maybe once or twice a year. Yeah. 
I mean, as long as fasting's working for you and you're not getting stuck, then you don't need to take that one day. But what okay. we found is, you know, much of what I saw in my community was all the O-matters and they were like so frustrated because they oh, were yeah. the next That's level too- of health. Yeah. They, they, the, the, yeah. I don't think OMAD is a good idea unless you're yeah, I don't. really young and healthy. Yeah. And that's a very small subset of the population. But yeah. I, even once you get it for 30 or 40, I would not do OMAD unless you're seeking to lose weight. Yeah. yeah. And then the other point I want to uh, point out, because a lot of people are worried about muscle breakdown. So mm-hmm. remember, I love how you started this, which was it's time restricted eating. So when you're fasting, you're going without food. But then once you open up that eating window, eat. This is not a time to not eat. It's a, it's a time to nourish yourself. And what we see in our community is if you go from that fasting window into protein and eat more protein, you start to stimulate not only mTOR in a positive way, but you also can trigger amino acid receptors in the muscles that will help the muscles grow stronger. So it the trick is once you eat, you got to eat and you got to eat the right macronutrients to keep that muscle really, really strong. Yeah, and I think the most important one is protein. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, and and it's not like you're eating protein all day long. You want the key. It's just it's the cycling, this the pulsing that yeah. is required. So, pulsing's great word. Yeah, yeah. So you want you want to you know depending on what your exercise regimen is, but at least twice a day you want to have that minimum for most everyone of thirty grams of protein at one yeah. sitting, so that you can activate mTOR. And you can provide the raw materials to build up anabolically and increase and at least sustain your muscle mass, if not increase it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think the biggest problem that we see where we see hurdles um, is that people get so excited about how they feel fasted <laughs> that they forget that food heals too. Oh, and then, right? And then they go into the food window and they're like, ah, I'm just going to eat. And to your point, I think protein is the most important macronutrient as well. And we need to be coming in. My recommendation always is break your fast with protein and mm-hmm. come in with at least 30 grams. So now we're switched back over into sugar burner, but we got mTOR to build that muscle. So it's the hardest thing is that you might have to eat, even if you're not, the ketones have killed that hunger hormone. You may still have to really be mindful, intentional about your food. And there, and I'm sure you, you integrate this into what you're teaching, but the key reason, or one of the key reasons you want to make sure you have enough muscle mass is that is where the receptors are right. that essentially drive the sugar into your muscles. That's the sink. That's how your body lowers yeah. sugar is it pushes it into the muscles. And if you don't have much muscle mass, it's not going to happen. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for that point. You know, we, the, at the core of what we're trying to do with, with time restricted eating is make you insulin sensitive. And one of the ways to become insulin sensitive is to have more muscles. So you have more insulin receptors. So this is where like I get in a lot of um, debate sometimes, especially in the, in the women's health world about calorie restriction versus fasting. And especially for women, especially for women over 40, you do not want to be in calorie restriction. When you eat, you want to eat and you want to eat protein. Yeah, it, it, that is, we should probably say that two or three more times because that yeah. is such a <laughs> fundamentally important concept yeah. that people, you just can't hear this one. Short. You've got to hear it repetitively. So, you yeah. know, this is, this is one of the key strategies you're going to need to integrate if you're going to be successful. Agreed. Agreed. People are always like, if they go out and and eat with me, they're like, my gosh, you eat so much. I'm like, 
yeah, that's, you know, if you can look at this, if you love food, this is the benefit of fasting is when you eat, you can enjoy your food. I, I'm a huge foodie. I love a great meal with family and friends. Um, I am not count, counting calories. I don't even really count macros anymore. I just lean right into that protein and use it as a tool to make myself more insulin sensitive. Yeah. So let, let's focus a bit on the protein and why don't you give us the highlights of what you're teaching to uh, help people understand how to implement this concept? Yeah. So the research on the protein that's, and you've, you mentioned it as well, that's really interesting is that once you open up your eating window, so think of it like that, like there's a time where the eating window is closed. And then once you open it, like for me, usually I open my eating window somewhere around 11 o'clock in the morning, then it's like, okay, now I'm going to eat. And the, the research shows that, and what we're seeing in our community quite a bit is 30 grams every couple of hours. So sometimes we can get away with 20, but the clinical research is called protein cycling. 30 grams every two to three hours is the best way to stimulate those amino acid uh, receptors in the muscle that will build muscle stronger. So like I just had a woman bring me um, a chart of what happened to her when she started to fast. And as she started to compress her eating window, she saw her her body her body fat go down. Mm -hmm. um, and then when she introduced this idea of protein cycling every two to three hours, we she started to see the months after the body fat went down that the muscle started to build. And she charted it over a five month period. So it's it's a little bit like you're you're dramatically shifting the the body composition. You're le leaning yourself out. And then when you open that eating window and you do this every couple of hours, get that protein into you, you start to build muscle. And um, the and then the to your point, the other really cool tool we're seeing is work out in a fasted state stress your muscle, break that muscle down, and then follow that up with protein. And we're seeing a lot of lean body muscle mass is happening, approaching it that way. Yeah. So the comment I would make on that recommendation is that it probably is useful initially, but once you are healthy, that every two to three hour ingestion of protein could be potentially problematic unless you had a really tiny eating window, because what you're going to do is you're going to, you're, you're, it's almost continuous, uh, um, activation of mTOR. And that's a concern. That's what most of the people do. And that actually absolutely increases the risk of cancer because mTOR is an anabolic, uh, trigger. And of course, uh, cancer is, uh, is unregulated cell growth. So we don't want to do that, but it, you know, the, the, the classic person who took this concept out of context was Dr. Ron Rosedale, who was really important mentor for me in helping me understand the importance of insulin and resistance in the nineties. But then he went off on a tangent and just thought that mTOR was evil and you should never activate. And that's just absolutely wrong. No, not a micro doubt in my mind, yeah. but, but you don't, if you don't want to activate it regularly. So I would say three times a day at most to really activate it once you're, once you've achieved your goals. Yeah. But so for long-term, if you want to optimize mTOR, it's probably the, the pulsing strategy that yeah. I think is close to ideal. And on, on that point, and what we're seeing in our community is that we can look at all this research and it's super impressive. And I, I look at it like it gets us in the ballpark. Yeah, now, yeah. even in a podcast like this, you're hearing all these tools, 
play with the tools and see which one works well for you. To your point, you know, Dr. Mercola, you're crazy healthy. You've been applying these principles for a long period of time, but somebody listening to this may be new to it. So they've got to try a couple of principles. Then when they 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 get that mastered, try a couple more, see what works best. The rigidity around clinical science said this, so everybody should follow that. I, I'm actually not a fan of. I'm a fan of finding your rhythm and see what works best for you. Yeah, developing your own personal intuitive uh, That's sensitivity right. for yeah. sure. So I think we would be best before we address the complex topic of women's hormones. Uh, <laughs> dive into the start-stop windows because that's the other component. And I'm fond of having people, well, first of all, you don't want to eat as soon as you get up. I mean, there's no question about it. The research is really, really clear. you got to wait at least two or three hours. But I, I, I'm concerned about people who, I mean, you're not in there, you're, you're eating at least eating before noon, but some people don't just skip breakfast completely, or at least the typical breakfast window is before noon. So they eat their first meal is one or two. And, and, so this pushes your last meal really late into the night. Yeah. So, which is not a good idea because, you know, Pachin, Sachin Panda's research is pretty clear. You need about five to six hours, five to six hours after your last bite before you've completely gone through the digestion cycle. So if you, if it's been even four hours, which is still acceptable, but if it's been even four hours, you're still like digesting your food when you go to sleep. Yeah. So I, I like people to have a little earlier eating window, like eight or nine, assuming they get up you know, early enough. If they get up at seven, it's not going to work. But, you know, about two hour break. And if you're if you're if you're going to bed at nine and getting up at five, that's a, which I think is a pretty optimal timing for most people, uh, then the, then it makes sense to stop eating about three or four. So why don't you give us your insights and your experience and what you've been doing? Yeah. So we have to remember that when melatonin goes high, you become more insulin resistant. So not only is it harder on the body the body's not going to get into those deep sleep patterns um, if it's digesting food, but you're also, we're back at insulin resistance, which really is what we're trying to solve. If we could solve the metabolic problem that the world has, we'd solve a lot of problems. So you have to remember that when melatonin goes up, you're going to become more insulin resistant. So, you know, when does melatonin go up? Well, it starts to go up as the sun goes down. So I also, I feel like we need to look at in the winter time, you're going to need to eat a lot earlier. You're going to mm -hmm. need to stop eating like two or three. So if you want an eight hour eating window to your point, you want to make sure that you're measuring that window to melatonin's demands. When you first get up in the morning, to your point, melatonin's high, you're going to be more insulin resistant. So we've got these bookends of light that we need to look at our eating window and, and act accordingly. Um, personally, you know, in the summertime, I'm a fan of like 11, I like 11 to about five. Uh, maybe even four in the winter time, to your point, you're going to probably have to move that eating window up a little bit so that you end up stopping it um, well before sunset so that your body can bring that insulin, can be more insulin sensitive with that meal. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That, that not, many people are not aware of the relationship between melatonin, melatonin and insulin resistance. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Uh, all right, I think we've covered most of the bases before we jump into the complexities of women's hormones <laughs> and how this yeah, modulates you. or demands modulation to implement successfully. Because actually one of the catalysts for 
my asking you to discuss this was a close friend and personal mentor of mine who's been following your work and really helped her immensely as she was perimenopausal. So, uh, she, she, so I, I listen to whatever this woman says because she's usually spot on. So I've been interested to hear your insights on how this can be uh, modulated. Yeah, so I think the thing to look at is that we have different sex hormones that drive us, men and women. So men, you, you're pretty much driven by testosterone. Uh, the research shows that intermittent fasting does really well for men and testosterone. We can increase like 1300% with just a short 15-hour fast in a man. You can really start to see testosterone go up. Um, now, I want to point out, we don't have very many studies on women, and there's a lot of reasons why, and that's maybe for another conversation. But women, we have testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone that drives us. So and, and testosterone is actually the highest concentration in a woman. Right. More, more than all that. Most people don't know that. It's just right. not as high as men. <laughs> right. Which is to your point, which is why there became this rhetoric out in the world that women shouldn't fast. And this is part of what I started screaming from the rooftops about was, no, we just have to do it differently because we if it raises 1300 percent in men, we don't have any research on women, but we it puts us in the ballpark again. Mm -hmm. We can yeah. start to increase testosterone in women using this as a tool. Estrogen, same thing. And to your friend's point, after 40, estrogen's doing this up and down and more women find themselves holding on to weight. They're more insulin resistant because of estrogen's wild ride. Well, with estrogen does really well with fasting as well. And especially if you time it to the cycle, which we can talk about in a moment. But progesterone, you progesterone does not play by this rule. In fact, for a woman, the week before her cycle, she's actually naturally going to raise her body will raise glucose. She'll become more insulin resistant because you need more glucose to make progesterone. So you put a woman in an OMAD lifestyle month after month, and you're going to see her hair fall out, her cycle change, uh, progesterone just tanks. She'll go into menopause earlier. Um, so it's these three hormones that we have to learn how to cycle. Um, in Fast Like a Girl, I show how to cycle it for a, a cycling woman and for perimenopausal women. Um, but even postmenopausal women have to think about this as those hormones decline. Yeah, and then there's another range of women who are essentially not menopausal. They're premenopausal, but they're not even periods. So they're, they're right. Yeah. So that's, so you can discuss that too, because that's a more complicated one yeah. because they don't, you can't, you don't have that normal visual cue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so on that one, um, what, I, and I'm shocked to your point, I, I have been shocked how many women don't have a regular cycle. Like this is, this is a problem too, because our cycle is how we detox. When we bleed, we're getting rid of toxins out of our body. And if I'm 25 and I've been on uh, certain birth controls that don't have me shedding that uterine lining, that's not healthy. So um, what, what I like to do is um, have an, in the new book, we have a 30 day fasting reset that women can start to do if they don't have a cycle to, to time it to. But you want to go through a 30-day period where you're playing with the principles of what estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, would how they would play. Um, and so you're having some periods where you're going into a little longer fast, 
Then you step out of fasting and you move into more some liver promoting foods and some more gut healthy foods that will help you break down those hormones. And then you go into longer fasts, trying to simulate coming out of ovulation. And then you have a period where you're not fasting and you're leaning into more root vegetables and potatoes and squashes to raise progesterone. So there's a lot of nuance in that statement that I just made, but women without a cycle but our age appropriately should be having a cycle, we've got to start to kind of mimic what that cycle would look like. And what we're seeing is eventually with that rhythm, they start to, their cycle comes back. So, and the way you do this is by changing the the window of eating during the different phases of the cycle. So That's can right. You review that for us. Yeah. Yeah. So in Fast Like a Girl, I map out something called the fasting cycle. And this is the tool every woman needed when we first started fasting. And it looks like this. Day one through day 10 of a woman's cycle, estrogen is building. You can go into those longer fasts. So if you're already fasting, you want to throw a three-day water fast, you want to do a 48-hour fast, throw it in during that first 10, 10 days. When you get into ovulation and all these hormones are surging, we've got estrogen at its highest, testosterone's at its highest, and a little bit of progesterone, we need to bring the fast down. We need to bring it down to like 13, 15 hours. Um, and you definitely don't want to push it. If that's a stretch, you can even do 12. Like this is not a time to push your fast. Um, it's a time to leave in, lean into more vegetables and, and, and bitter foods to really help support the liver and the gut to break down um, mm. those hormones. Then around day 16, we come out of ovulation and we the hormones are have dropped. So we can go back into a little longer fast. If a lot of women like a 24-hour fast, they can do that at that point. But as we start to get into about day 19, progesterone's building, and this is where we don't want to fast and we don't want to be in keto. That's another big piece is that we've got to raise glucose so that progesterone has what she needs to be able to kick in. And that that cycle is what we're seeing a lot of these 25-year-olds 32 year olds that have these abnormal cycles, if they start to create that rhythm, they'll start to bring their cycle back. So are, are there three phases you're describing or four? Yeah, I, I call it three in the book, um, but it's really one phase shows up twice. So the oh, okay. First, yeah. So, so yeah. just do that again. Cause it's a little bit confusing. Okay. So day one through day 10 is what I call the power phase. So mm-hmm. think of it like you can power up on all these tools. Then day uh, 11 to day 15 is what I call manifestation phase because you have all these hormones. It's your superpower. Then day 16 to day 19, we're in another power phase because those hormones dropped. So you can power up on. on okay, uh, so you get, you get another opportunity for fast. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So and that the one of the easiest ways to look at it is when hormones go high, the fast need to go low. So okay. if you look at a woman's chart, there are two low points. And that's where we power it up. And there's two high points in a 28, 30-day period. Did you develop any graphics to illustrate this? I did, yeah. In the book, we have a fasting cycle graphic. Could you send me a graphic so I could put it in the article? That would be great. Yeah, Yeah, of course. All right. Uh, Because it is confusing. I mean, unless you're a woman, I guess. But for men, right? Yeah, we don't have personal experience with this. But yeah, yeah. we we actually are even creating an app now that will come out with the book, so that a woman can go. Okay, it's day nine. What should I be doing? 
um, just to make it more simple. Because even for women, it's confusing. Um, but when you see it visually, it makes a ton of sense. Okay, so I, I want to address the group of women who uh, should be, they are premenopausal biologically, but they're not cycling. They're not menstruating. So how, what do you suggest how, how women integrate this four phases of, of intermittent or time-restricted eating into their non-existent cycle? That's the million dollar question. So um, this, I think the perimenopausal women, this is the hardest one um, Mm. to really uh, explain. So uh, um, here's the, here's the most simple way I can explain it. Um, Around 40, we really need to start to get to know the characteristics of progesterone and estrogen primarily. Um, because as your ovaries are going into retirement, we're going to see some pretty dramatic shifts in those two hormones. So you, when we look at the fasting cycle, I just talked about, if you're 45, you have a cycle, just follow that, that I just mentioned, you'll be, you'll find a natural rhythm will be great. But what do we do if you're coming, if all of a sudden you don't have a cycle for 60 days, Mm -hmm. so you hit that. Or longer, you've when you start to notice, like for example, if you're spotting, if you're spotting, that's progesterone, like tapping you on the shoulder, saying, "Hey, I need a little more glucose." So you would step out of a keto fasting day, and the next day you may shorten your fast, elongate your eating window, and use more of nature's carbs to give progesterone more glucose. So spotting is a big one. Anxiety is another big one. Trouble sleeping is another big one where we need to have women step out of keto and fasting and step into more of this higher glucose. Now, estrogen will talk to a woman. Excuse me if I interrupt, but just to stop there for a moment, because that's a simple recommendation, but I just want to expand on what that really means. If you want to increase the glucose, that means you have to expand your eating window. That's right. More hours a day. And do you also recommend eating more carbohydrates, specifically healthy carbohydrates? Yeah. I I call them nature's carbs. Uh, Progesterone loves uh, root vegetables, all the squashes, uh, grass-fed beef for sure. Um, but a lot of people doing ketos are, are already doing that, but even tropical fruits, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, a lot of people in the keto world are like scared of fruit, <laughs> Not me. We, right? But bananas, mangoes, papayas, citrus fruits, those really help support, uh, progesterone production. So okay. yeah, you really, a lot of sweet potatoes, potatoes, all kinds of squashes, all kinds of fruits, that's going to help progesterone really sh- uh, make her appearance, as I call it, and um, bring back a big part of your cycle into a regular rhythm. That's a good point. So I interrupted you. So you go yeah. So then, so then estrogen, estrogen, a, a perimenopausal woman will know that estrogen is really low when she starts getting hot flashes. When her hair starts getting really frizzy and dry, when her skin is really dry, she's starting to get more wrinkles. Her mucosal membranes become really dry and cognition is difficult. Like she can't hold on to information. If that's happening, then you actually want to lean into a little bit of the longer fast because estrogen does really well with a longer fasting window. And you want to lean into more of a ketogenic diet. And, and on that day for a perimenopausal woman, for me, a ketogenic diet is high protein uh, or higher protein and switching over to nature's carbs. I, for the perimenopausal woman, I don't recommend an extreme low ketogenic diet. 
I think she still needs some carbs, um, but I, she really needs to lean into longer fast to get estrogen and more protein, and that will dramatically well, help. Would, would this also be true for a perimenopausal woman who is metabolically inflexible? You know, one of the 1920 uh, people. Right, in the right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it, absolutely, you know, that the biggest fear for that woman is once she finds her fasting rhythm, if she's losing weight, she doesn't want to give that up, mm -hmm. but we got to pull her out and get her raising glucose so that she can make progesterone and not tank her hormones. So, mm -hmm. um, and what we're finding with that metabolically inflexible woman is actually the in and out is where weight loss happens and where metabolic uh, flexibility comes back in. So mm -hmm. it's, we want those absolutes, right? Do this and this will happen. But the, I have a chapter in the book that I just love called uh, metabolic switching is the missing key to weight loss because we need to like force it in, a, in and, and get the body pushed into this fasting window and maybe a little less carbs. So it primes that fat burner system. And then we need to come back to the glucose system again and work on making that really healthy for all the hormones. So it's the switching in and out that will get the metabolic change that the perimenopausal woman's looking for. Okay. So that helps explain it quite a bit, but I'm wondering if there's a difference for the non-cycling uh, perimenopausal woman, as opposed to the postmenopausal woman who is yeah. essentially in the same boat, they're not cycling and except they don't have the hormonal shifts that are going into perimenopause. So, so if you're really lost on your cycle, here's a beautiful way to, to look at it. And um, I'd be curious, some of your thoughts on this. Um, what we're finding is that, and I, in the book, I do this 30 day reset that every woman can do, but every woman's going to start the 30 day reset at a different point. If we didn't have so much blue light, if we were out in regular sunlight on a regular basis, most women would ovulate with a full moon. There oh, is definitely, yeah, like if back in the cave days, I'm pretty sure all women ovulated at the same time. Wow, fascinating. Isn't that cool? But yeah. now I've got all this artificial light going. I might not get outside. I'm so out of touch with the rhythms of the moon. So when we look at the woman who's maybe 46, 47, has really irregular cycles, she can start to take this 30-day reset and just map it to the moon and just come in. The moon and ovulation, or what I call manifestation phase, are the same thing. So just you'd come in right at that point and start to work the 30 days from there. So the, the day of the full moon would be day one of your menstrual cycle. The day of the full moon would be ovulation. So that's actually about oh, ovulation. Day, day 11. Day 11. Okay. Sorry. I got that mixed yeah. up. Yeah. Last clarification. Yeah. Question. No, no. But a lot of, you know, check this out. I can't tell you how many women have asked me what's day one of their cycle. Yeah. Like the, we should know that, yeah, yeah. you know, the, like the hormone illiteracy amongst humans, but especially amongst women is really sad. So day one is when you need feminine care products, you're officially bleeding. And mm -hmm. so when we get to day 11, that's obvious around the thick of ovulation. And in we should be, that would be mapped to the full moon at that point. Okay, great. That, that's a really important point. Yeah. So I could, I can just add some of my experience with optimizing circadian rhythm with light exposure 
in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so how do we do that? A, there's a lot of practical things that you can do. I mean, really you can go on for like an hour about this, but the key is that it, be, it becomes most challenging in the winter, obviously, when depending on how north you live, you may have right, right. You know, six, eight, seven hours of daylight. But when sun, sun when the sun isn't out, and, and if this problem essentially disappears if you're in subtropics or in single digit latitudes, uh, because the variance in the, the time of daylight is less than 30 minutes the whole year. But essentially the same challenge is there. After sunset and before sunrise, you don't want any blue light exposure. So this means if you're turning on lights in your house, ideally the they would be red lights. And they do make red light non-flickering LED bulbs, which only put out about three watts. You can still see, not as clearly. Uh, and they're actually even less... Um, intrusive on your melatonin axis as opposed to a, a candle or fire, which is our only source of light prehistorically. Uh, and humans have been exposed to since the dawn of time. You know, we've been, so it, it, seeing fire at night isn't isn't negative to your biology, but or red light. Red light won't, won't do it. So you've got to do that. And, and, and you can't, you have to be careful about screens. So your phones are really pretty good because Android and iPhone both have settings that essentially will only show you, will eliminate the blue light if you're careful in implementing them. But the other screens is primarily your computer monitors or your TVs. You have to be really careful and you have to put blue light filters on them. Uh, you don't have to, but it, it would make life a lot easier. My favorite is, is an app called Iris, I-R-I-S. And you can Get that at iris.tech, T-E-C-H dot C-O, not com, dot C-O. And it's really one of the best ones out there, iristech.com. And uh, you can put it on all your screens. And if you have a TV, you could actually hook it up to a computer <laughs> and display your whatever. Because what, most people don't. I mean, even if you're watching Netflix or YouTube, but you know, most people don't watch cable TV anymore. So you can use your computer to run your TV, in which case you can implement the blue light blocker mm, system on Iris. Yeah, it is. It's pretty phenomenal because, you know, for myself personally, about the only time I would watch TV would be before I go to bed and it's almost always after sunset. Yeah. So, um, and, I, and I use it with a computer. So I've got Iris and I just basically my computer is red and white. Um, so that would be a key thing. And, uh, you know, implementing those strategies. And, and, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the light and you need light, just remember red light is relatively harmless. Although there's another component of this that factors in this sort of a, 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 one that I recently appreciate, and that's the intensity of the light or the lux. So you can have these uh, photobiomodulation panels that put up a thousand watts of power, a kilowatt of bright light, and it might have thousands of lux. But if you have a really a three watt red white bulb, I mean, even if you're looking at it directly, it's only it can go up to I think thirty. But if you're not looking at it, essentially there, there's little apps that you can download on your uh, phone that measure the lux, and they're free, so you can put it out there. And if you go out and on the beach and you're in you know, it's a cloudless day, you'll be like fifty thousand, sixty thousand lux. Yeah. But uh, ideally, when you're in your bedroom at night, you want it below 20 lux. So even if it's red light, if it's really bright light, you have to be careful. But if you do that, you're consistent, diligent with it. But then you can implement your recommendations of yeah. using the full moon as the barometer 
of uh, day 11 of your cycle. Right. Which is really cool. You know, it's so fun to me. Like we're coming back to some of these real primal principles that our body works with. The the other thing I would add into that, that I feel, especially for the perimenopausal and menopausal woman is that when we go out in the midday without sunglasses on, you have serotonin receptor sites in your eyes. Um, so you need to go out, the, the, the eyes need to see that it's a full spectrum light. They need to know what set, send a message, a hormonal message to the body, what time of the day is. But for the woman over 40, as estradiol starts to go down, estradiol actually stimulates a serotonin receptor. And Mm -hmm. if you don't, as you lose estradiol, you're going to have less stimulation of serotonin. So you need to lean into other ways to stimulate serotonin and light is one of them, but it has to be full spectrum. So if we take what you just said with the red light at the beginning and the end of the day, full light in the middle of the day. Now we can time our fasts according to our uh, the moon cycle. Now we've given a woman over 40 some serious tools to balance her hormones out. Well, thank you for reminding me of that because that is part of my program. And I recommend and encourage everyone to get out for one full hour a day with as little closing on as possible at solar noon. So now that we're out of daylight savings time, it happens to be 12. But in the summer, when those most all the states that are in it, it's 1 p.m. So getting up from 1230 to 130 and getting full sun exposure without sunglasses is really the goal. And, yeah, and you should, should do it almost every day. Even if it's cloudy, you're still going to get some benefits, not yeah. as much as if it's cloudless, but still. Yeah. still benefit. And, and I think the big message, the take home message for women is that. Or like I was thinking about with the with the with the the areas where there's no light. I'm so curious, like Alaska, what happens to their cycle? Oh. And because the big take home message is that, yes, we are living in this crazy modern world, but you are still synced to the earth. Oh, you are dude. still synced to light and you're going to see how well you're syncing to these natural uh, occurrences and in, in, uh, that the earth gives us based off of what your hormones are doing. And so if you're, if your hormones are off, if your period's off, if your cycle's really long, like mm, let's go back to the natural rhythms. Yeah. And I think one of the best ways to do that is go back to where our ancestors grew up, which was typically in single digit latitudes. Yeah, that's a good point. That I mean, we don't have single digit latitudes in the United States, even Hawaii and South Florida is still in the upper teens, I think. Uh, So yeah, that then you don't have to worry about this. Yeah. But you know, for for if you're living in Alaska or Canada, I mean, you can survive there, but for the most part, you sure the heck can't thrive. Yeah. You you because you're out of your biological optimum zones. You were never designed to be living there ancestrally. I'd be really curious now. I'm going to go look at the research on. Surely somebody's looked at the menstrual cycles of women yeah. in in these um, areas because that's a perfect example of how light has a hormonal effect on us. Yeah, I'm I'm just so glad to. I, I maybe heard it before, but I certainly didn't remember it that the, the menstrual cycles are see, s- s- linked to the moon, to full yeah. moon. So that is yeah. just. Really that's cool. an amazing pearl. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, no, I really, um, I, I really am trying to get women. I feel like we're at an evolutionary mismatch. The modern world has really pulled us out of our natural rhythms and it, it, you know, fasting and food is one, but light is a huge one, huge one. Yeah, it is for, to optimize biology. It's virtually impossible to do that unless you integrate that into your strategy. So yeah. agreed. 
It's just yeah. so key and, and difficult to do in the last 130 or 40 years since they invented the light bulb, you know, which is, is just, oh, it's just you, destroyed things. You know, what's so interesting is that my mom is 80, 83, and she always says like menopause was no, a no brainer for me. It was nothing. Mm-hmm. And then she said, and your grandma, it was nothing for her. And so here we have a, a genetic lineage and yet for my sister and I, we had to make some modifications that my mom and my grandma didn't have to make. And I really feel like it's because the world has shifted. My mom didn't have a phone to deal with. She didn't have a computer to deal with. Um, she wasn't indoors all the time. So when we look at like these women that are struggling and we're debating HRT and bioidenticals, let's come back to foundational. When are we mm-hmm. eating? What, how, what are we eating? What's our light exposure? What's our sleep time? All of this matters more for women after 40 than ever before. Absolutely. So one other point in optimizing your light exposure that I neglected to mention, because primarily I'm a homebody and I rarely go outside my home. And when I do, when I travel or lecturing, uh, but I always carry this in my backpack where my blue light blocking glasses <laughs> yeah. because, and this is especially important for people who drive. And I typically almost never drive at night. I'm in a car sometimes, but I'm usually being driven somewhere. So put on, and you got to look at these bright white light <laughs> headlights coming I mean, in on you, you regularly. So that's when you want to wear your blue light blockers for sure. Yeah, That's really important. And when you go out and actually they look really stylish. I get a lot of compliments. I think people think <laughs> they don't understand the blue light. Most people, and they say, Oh, those glasses look really sharp because they're orange or yeah. amber. So uh, that's something you can, there's a lot of those lights out there. Just be careful that when you buy them, because some, a lot of glasses are advertised as blue light blocking, but they aren't. And how do you find out? Well, you don't need a expensive test. You just need to find a blue light in your house or somewhere and then put the glasses on and see if the light disappears. If it yeah. doesn't disappear, it's not a blue light blocking glass. Yeah, that's a good, that's, yeah, I agreed. And, you know, I think we need to be wearing blue light at night and in the morning, the most those gla- glasses. But during the day, again, I don't want to oh, you wear. Don't you don't, don't want to wear? No, because no, your eyes no. need to know that there is actually uh, a daytime that's occurring. Absolutely, and I do not. I, people wear them in the daytime. Sometimes, actually, the, the sister of one of my good friends is. Uh, I just recommended she put them on. <laughs> just like it this made this chronic pain she had in her head just disappear, which is pretty amazing. But crazy. But I told her it's still important to get some blue light. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So this has been phenomenal. So I, I, I think I covered most of the things I want to, but did I leave anything out that you'd like to mention? Yeah. I think the only other age group that I get for women that I get asked a lot is postmenopausal women. And one of the most interesting things that I've seen is how many women will tell me they've, they went through menopause 10 years ago and they still have hot flashes They still are having the cognition issues. They're still struggling to lose weight. And so the principles of fasting that I map out in the new book will work work perfect for the postmenopausal woman. She still has to step out of fasting sometimes to bring progesterone up. Like, you know, she we still have to cycle this. You just don't have Mm -hmm. a 
a, a menstrual cycle. So then again, this is where the moon cycle, I really recommend that the postmenopausal women start to look at that moon cycle as the time when she would ovulate. So, um, you know, the general rule in fasting is men, men can just fast, just make sure you vary it sometimes. And women, I'm going to say you need to vary it to your menstrual cycle, or you need to look at the moon cycle. One or the other, there needs to be a, a different pattern, but you can't just fast all the time for that postmenopausal woman. Are you convinced that uh, even though a woman's postmenopausal, that probably until she passes, she still has some cycling of her hormones, even though it's not high enough to generate yes. the yes. cycle? Yeah. And if we go back to my mom, like, you know, if I think the older women, they probably were more synced to the moon than like the fit, the six fifty and 60 year old women going into postmenopausal, uh, their postmenopausal life right now. But yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I think it's hard when you've been cycling for 30 years, you're not, it's not like all of a sudden blood stops and the cycle's done. You're still pulsing these hormones in a very rhythmic way and getting to know that rhythmic way is really important. All right. So I neglected a really important question, which sadly is all too common, but there are a fair number of women who are surgically menopausal. Yeah. So they, their ovaries are removed. So obviously the ovaries are the source of the hormones of the hormones. So what do you do in those cases? Yeah. So this is, again, we treat them like a postmenopausal woman. So in the book, they have have no cycling though. They can't. Right. But you just, you basically do a 30 day going in and out of different, and you can follow the moon again, same. You just, they're now postmenopausal. They have no, they have no hormones. So they may be 39, but you're postmenopausal, so you're just following the rules of the postmenopausal woman. Yeah, and for those who choose to use bioidentical hormone uh, replacement therapy, it would seem wise, no matter what the reason they're on it, to replicate that same strategy, yes. to use the, yes. the full moon is day 11, and that's when you should sync up your hormones and stra- stra- strategies. Yeah. And we had a really interesting story in our community um, from a woman out of Australia who had a full hysterectomy in her early 40s. And they told her that she would pretty much be in full fledged menopause, no hormones, like all her hormones would be totally at their lowest within three months, four months. Three years later, they did a hormone test on her and they were, she was still having the hormones that were higher than we see in a postmenopausal woman. woman. So here's my theory on it is that when you remove an organ, you don't remove all the tissue. Um, you're still going to have some tissue in there. And then also remember that we've got the adrenals make these sex hormones. Um, we've got other tissue that makes muscle actually can make, um, some of the sex hormones. So she just cleaned up her diet, followed this fasting cycle, and she kept those hormones higher than the doctor expected. Yeah, that is, that's great. So I didn't realize that, but it makes sense. So the uh, one question I forgot to ask it was the common concern you alluded to it earlier that women shouldn't fast uh, or should be really careful about doing time restricted eating because of their hormone system. And I think it, because of adrenal stress or adrenal uh, I forget the term that they use to, to assess, to label women with, but because of that concern, 
So can you expand on it? For yeah. A yeah. Like adrenal fatigue, which is adrenal really fatigue. Yeah, I couldn't remember just, yeah. It's yeah. not like the adrenals wear out. It's the whole HPA access. Yeah. So this is a really common question. People ask, well, I'm adrenal fatigued. I'm not supposed to fast. Yeah, and yeah. what I we've seen in our community is that applying the principles of a hormetic stress to these women can actually get the adrenals to, to and the HPA access to start to rith- get rhythmic again. So I just say you just you can still fast. It just has to be a little bit slower process where I could probably take a woman who's adrenal fatigued and get her back into her rhythm with fasting according to her cycle. It may take her a month. The adrenal fatigue person, it may take three months. You just got to kind of tiptoe in, push the fast a little bit, but the, the hypothalamus and the pituitary are really respond well to autophagy. So we want, and so do the, the fecal cells, the outer part of the ovaries, and as do the adrenals. So the endocrine system in general likes a little bit of autophagy. So ultimately, I want to get the adrenal fatigued person to a, a good 17 hours where we're starting to see autophagy kick in a couple times a week. We just got to tiptoe that person in so that it doesn't overload that system that's already struggling. That's terrific. All right. Well, this has been amazing. I'm sure it's going to help so many people. So thank you for sharing it. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to dive in deeper. So why don't you give us the names of your books, your YouTube channel and uh, your website? Yeah. So the new book's coming out. It's called Fast Like a Girl. Um, it w- It's the first manual with these six fasts for women. So you can go to fastlikeagirl.com. Uh, my YouTube is Dr. Mindy Pels. I've got, gosh, thousands of videos on fasting for both men and women there. Everything you want to learn, you can learn there. If you forget it all, you can just go to my website, Dr. Mindy Pels, and and find everything you need there. Well, great. Well, thank you for providing this amazing service. It's obvious you're committed to helping people in a profoundly effective way. And thank you for doing that. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Mercola. I mean, I've, I've been a fan of yours forever and your work, and it's just a, it's a real honor to have this conversation with you. So thank you. All right. You're most welcome. Likewise. So uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. You, you as well. All right.